0: This is Hal Hester, Lead Pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see your faces this morning. Hope that you are doing well, having a good weekend, prospering in the Lord. Excited to be with you this morning as we're uh, getting into Romans chapter 11. You know, uh, we have been talking about the transformative power of God and how transformation uh, works within us. And this morning I feel it's really significant as we've been looking at chapters 9, 10, and 11, just really a solid context altogether there. You know, we are bringing to a crescendo this whole part of 9, 10, and 11 as we have been talking about the transformative power specifically today we're going to hit really hard on this whole issue of what it means to be loved by God for you and I then to really understand and enfold deep into our being what does it mean when you and I are loved by God? What is the, the the transforming power of the love of God? How does it impact us? How does it uh, affect the way that we view ourselves? The way we affect affect the way we view the world, even in the way in which we view the scriptures. I think it's very central to our understanding of who God is. I really believe that more people, if they fully understood this moment right here that we're going to talk about, about how the transformative love, the transformative power of God's love, of understanding how that love is deeply woven through the entire witness of Scripture, it would be the greatest catalyst to move the church ever in history. But so far, in 2,000 years of history, it seems that we are really clueless. Let's take a look, shall we? Throughout the series, we've been talking about the transformative power of the Spirit. First four chapters, we talk about the old creation, the revelation of creation, how it points to a good God, how the fall explains the gap between creation and God. In chapters 5 through 8, we talked formerly about the new creation, chapter 8 being the epicenter of that letter telling us of the heart cry of all of the cosmos, longing for the revelation of the sons of God and establishing the new creation and what it's to be like. Chapters 9 through the first part of 12, focusing on the transformation process. So today, as we're looking in chapter 11, we're going to talk about the heart of God, not only for those who are far off, but His ongoing commitment to the perseverance of the saints, including those who are faithless despite the fact that many within Israel dropped the ball as a witness to the nations, despite the fact that many within Israel, are told, we are told, will perish, the theme is of God holding out His hand to them, to all of us, and is a powerful reminder of not only His patience, but His incredible love. As we see the witness throughout the entire Bible, again and again, all the way from Genesis through the end of Revelation, and with it, a sharp rebuke to anyone, Jew or Greek, who might look down on those who stumble, or worse yet, think themselves better than those, who haven't, than those who have stumbled on the basis of one's current status versus the fallen status of another. Always ever calling us to be merciful in our assessment, to give mercy to others, lest we fall into the same trap of pride and then be destroyed ourselves. Let's take a look. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read uh, from the English Standard Version. Please follow along. Whatever translation you have in your lap is my favorite. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent. Let's take a look. Uh, Romans 11, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. I ask then, has God rejected His people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to them? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of those branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But if you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do, want, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. For as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at once time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercies shown to you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or been His counselor? And who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you have heard me say repeatedly about the importance and the critical grounding we need from the Hebrew Bible for understanding and then applying the entirety of the Bible. It's imperative that we understand a sense of continuance across both Testaments. Otherwise, we get erroneous conclusions about God, about the nature of faithfulness, and about salvation often those erroneous conclusions are that that the nature of God has changed from one testament to the other. And so uh, I've said it jokingly, but there is kind of a tendency in kind of American church culture where we act as if God was this wrathful God in the Old Testament and then he became a Christian and just started being nice all of a sudden in the New Testament, which completely defies the witness of the Old Testament number one and number two I would simply point out that almost every single scripture that refers to the mercy and the kindness of God in the New Testament is a direct quote from the Old Testament So that actually doesn't even make remote sense if you just simply slow down enough to read those verses in the New Testament and then notice that they're offset and go back and look at them, you would read them in their context and realize that there is no way, there's just no, no way that you can read the New Testament and conclude that the God of the Old Testament was a different God or that He behaved differently or that He was less than merciful throughout the whole weight of the Old Testament. And so if you read the Old Testament and you're getting the conclusion that God is wrathful, unkind, impatient, my response to you is you're reading it wrong. It is not a shortage of witness in the Old Testament. It's that you're reading it in a selective way, possibly ignoring some of those significant segues where it talks about that then a hundred years later his wrath was poured out. And then you think about your own behavior and tell me when you've ever waited a hundred years to pour out your wrath on anyone. Hello? It's just really very inconsistent reading that produces that, or really bad teaching that wants to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament, which is downright heresy. Now, The other thing is often that about faithfulness, what we lose when we separate the two testaments, is that we get the idea that faithfulness is on us. And so oftentimes the way we preach faithfulness and faith all comes down to you being faithful rather than God being faithful. Again, if you're just putting that on yourself, one of the big problems is is if God is not faithful, It doesn't matter that you're faithful. Hello? If you put your faith in the alarm clock, but the power goes out, you put your faith in the wrong thing, right? I mean, I can have hope, I can lean into something, I can believe something all I want, but if it's not actually there, if it isn't able to do what was promised, then my hope, my faithfulness is in nothing. If you and I put our faith in God and God is not faithful, that would be meaningless. But it is He who is faithful. That is the great witness from Genesis 3 on is showing how God intended all of these things, how God has brought everything to pass, that God is faithful to do everything that He has promised. So then, as we look at all the things that have come to pass through his faithfulness, we have confidence in the few things that are left to be tended to. In other words, we have this confidence as we look forward that what he says will happen in the end of days will happen because he has been faithful all throughout time and history. We can say, well, I have confidence. Past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior, right? If you've got somebody who is a bad actor, you don't suddenly think to yourself, well... I bet he'll be different next time. If you do, that's called codependence. We have counseling for that. You know, you, you, that is unhealthy thinking. If you think that the guy who beats his wife is suddenly going to stop beating his wife apart from being radically changed by Jesus, you're going to get hit a whole lot. If you think that she's going to start being faithful, suddenly out of nowhere when she hasn't been faithful all uh, the, her entire, entire marriage guess what you are being codependent you're, you're you're hoping in something that doesn't exist apart from the love of jesus changing her heart right so it, it could be any number of things that you and i when we are looking to the faithfulness of god that we need to understand that he is first faithful and that the reason you and i can have faith the reason we can put trust is that two things is that one god is faithful and second that he imparts to us a gift of faith so that we can trust him and believe him and be consistent in that belief and then that other erroneous conclusion that we might get the idea that salvation Is strictly limited to our own experience and therefore have erroneous conclusions about God, about His nature. And when we get to something like Romans chapter 8, we miss that grand scheme of all that He's doing throughout all of creation, how He's redeeming all things, how He is not only concerned about you and your personal experience of him, he's not only concerned about you and your personal salvation so that you don't go to hell, but he is concerned about the entire world. And if you and I get divorced from that, if we miss that entire witness of all the scriptures of what it means for God to work in the world to bring about salvation, we could erroneously conclude it's all about us and it could produce a selfish kind of Christianity that is consumed in the 21st century. Right, Christianity in the West versus Christianity globally is failing as a direct result of selfish Christianity, consumer-oriented Christianity that has made it all about me and my own private salvation, turned God into a private God, and so then we don't care about the world and its destruction, its passing away, as long as we're comfortable consumer, selfish Christianity is wrecking havoc all over the Western world. And that's why we haven't seen any church growth in the Western church in over 40 years. If we read our New Testament apart from our Old Testament, we could think that kind of Christianity is okay we could build really big churches around selfish Christianity and preach messages that are all about me feeling better about myself all about me getting what I want all about my comfort all about my prosperity anybody think anything sounds familiar just remotely I don't know just just a thought problematic in the modern church is divorcing ourselves from the Hebrew Bible and thinking of God in a way that is less than honoring, less than brings glory to Him. Or, we go back and read the Old Testament and see instead of God who loves legal code more than people, and then we develop that same kind of pharisaical attitude, toward others maybe even feel justified in looking down at somebody so that we could look at somebody as the Pharisee did and say I thank God I'm not like that tax collector and I thank God I'm not like this woman over here or so in our text today in which the Apostle is affirming In a very classic Hebrew polemic and apologetic style, he's affirming what the Scriptures... Remember, as he's writing these things, what he's writing in the letter of Romans means the New Testament doesn't yet exist. He's He's helping to write the New Testament. And so when he's talking about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. So he's using this same style and a polemic, this apologetic uh, from the Old Testament. And what he's affirming is that the Scriptures have always, 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 taught. Number one, that God is faithful, and number two, that He doesn't give up. He doesn't give up as we look at the history of God and His people throughout the Hebrew Bible, uh, can I just tell you that this is just this is so central to our understanding of who God is, that He doesn't give up. I mean, you and I start there and, in Genesis, and we begin to read about what happens like from day one, right? I mean, we're in Genesis chapter 3, and we've got Adam and Eve, and He goes, the one thing I don't want you to do... Is eat from the tree right over there in the middle of the garden. You can eat from all the others, just don't eat that one. And what do they do? Chapter three? Oops. Oops. And that like becomes the definition of humanity from there on. Oops. I love it when my my grandson Trey will, like, he'll be like, I'll get after him or something, and he'll go, Sorry, Papa. Sorry, Papa. Sorry. At one time, I just looked at him the other day, and I said, "You keep using that word. I don't think you know what it means." (laughs) Because you keep doing the same thing. Anyone here ever said "sorry, Papa" a few too many times? Don't raise your hand. That's chapter three, right? And then we follow. By the time we get to chapter eleven, God is like at is just like oh these children of mine, and He says, "I'm going to cleanse the earth." by flood but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord we're not even out of the first book you don't get through the first book without several more accounts of where it's like at the end of the rope and people are doing everything they want and they're just going running insane and yet, what do we find each time is that God has mercy. God has mercy. God has mercy. What God has mercy. I mean, like, how many times do we have to have God having mercy just in the book of Genesis alone for you and I to come to the conclusion that maybe God is merciful? I don't know. It just, it just that's what kind of a pet peeve of mine. Like, how do you get out of the book of Genesis and not conclude that God is merciful? Amen. You are here. It is proof that God is merciful. Amen. Amen. And yet, it goes; it continues throughout the Hebrew Bible. So that first question in chapter eleven isn't just building on the first two chapters of Rome, on the last two chapters of Romans nine and ten, but it's also. Built on the entire witness of the Hebrew scriptures, when he says, Has God given up on his people? Has he repudiated them? Literally, it says, We just, not a word we use a lot. Has God given up on his people? And then there's that resounding, emphatic, and evidential no. The evidence says it clearly. I mean, you and I look at the the entire evidential witness of the Old Testament. We have to conclude, no, there's no way that God has given up on his people. Now, I know that there is a false doctrine called supersessionism that teaches that the church has replaced Israel and that God turned his back on them. But this passage alone ought to tell us that God has not stopped loving Israel. Instead, what it ought to tell us is a great deal about the way that God loves his people. That he's patient. You see, God is the same today, yesterday, forever. It's the same thing that he feels for Israel as what he feels for us now. It's the same thing because God is the same. God is the unchanging God. And so as we look at the witness of the Bible, we find that God repeatedly, repeatedly does what? He, it begins with, he sets a standard, and then the people fall, and he rebukes them, and he calls them to account, and then he gives them new, and he tells them, he says, here's what I want for you. You ever do this with your kids? You know, like, I'm going to do this, but this is what I want for you. And so, like, here's the two things. I'm holding out blessing and cursing. You may not say it that way. You probably say, here's the keys, or here's the way that doesn't get the keys. This is the way to get the money for this event, or how not to get the money for this event. This is the way to get what you want for dinner. This is the way to, not this is the way to end up with porridge. This is the way to end up with Chef Boyardee in my house. I don't know, in your house it may be like a, a blessing. In my house, Chef Boy RD is the way you get punished. Everybody else eats what I make, you get to have Chef Boy RD. Because I can't think of anything nastier. Just my own personal opinion, I know. Some of you love Chef Boy RD, God bless you, you know. Um, but in my house, that's a punishment. But there is always this sense in which God is constantly saying to his people, even in the midst of punishing them, that he says, but this isn't what I want for you. Israel, I love you. Samaria, I love you. Remember Samaritans, like the ones that the Jews thought, you know, nobody loves them? I mean, he he continually says this to his people over and over again. "I, I love you. I don't want this for you. I don't want it to end this way. I don't want it to become this. And yet, repeatedly, they just seem to go headlong into things. Anybody here, when you were a kid or have a child know that sometimes it doesn't matter how many times you make it clear what the blessing looks like versus the other that they seem to choose the other and you just like like, go let me testify Uh, you know it is just it is incredible sometimes and so here in the middle of it God rebukes them sternly and sometimes his frustration even meters out a, a harsh discipline and both testaments testify to that reality that God chastens every son in whom he loves we get to Hebrews and it says listen if you are never chastened then you are an illegitimate son every legitimate child of God every legitimate son of God is chastened they're corrected they're, they, they, God works in their life trying to keep them on the right course In fact, he says, if you're never chastened, you might actually conclude that you're not actually a child of God. We never get corrected. Because, like, what do you do, you know, like when you're out in public and that kid that's running down through the middle of the mall, cursing and carrying on everything. Now, some of you might be, you know, brave enough to, like, grab the dog by the hair of the neck uh, in public places. But most people in our society go Wow, that kid's raised bad. Wow, where's that child's mama? And we stand by and we watch it happen because it's not my monkeys, not my circus, right? And so here's the thing if God never chastens you when you're coloring outside the lines, be afraid. It's amazing sometimes how people get that wrong. They go, oh, well, see, I must be the exception. I don't know how many times I've been told by, some, like, by a cheating spouse, well, God hasn't punished them so that you know, they, maybe they're the exception, they just have a higher libido than other people. I'm like, you, you just said the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> what that ought to tell you is, is you're not a child, that you don't belong to Him, and you ought to be very afraid. God chastens every son whom he loves. So we have this grand history of Israel. You you and I can even look as, as late as the Assyrian captivity or the Babylonian captivity and see how God continually held out his hand to Israel. I mean, one of our favorite texts at Christmas time, right, is when he's talking about the child who will be born of the young maiden, right? And we know it in the New Testament as the child will be born of a virgin, but in the Hebrew it's talking about a young maiden and there's this whole thing in which the prophet Isaiah is pointing to a young woman in the king's court and says, "Before this child is even reaches the age of 3, the king who is pursuing you will be crushed and this will be proof that God is with you and for you. And you need to put your confidence in Him and not worry about the outside kings, not worry about what Babylon's doing, not worry about what anyone else is doing, that you would trust in the living God. Right there in the middle of their disobedience. He's holding out hope. But they didn't listen and they still went into captivity. And then in the restoration of Israel, God continues still as they're being carried away into captivity with fish hooks in their nose into Assyria and being marched over to Babylon and and people are left in this situation, you know, with undefended and all the royal family has been marched over, that's what happens to Daniel and all. And yet there's still these prophetic words coming from Ezekiel and Daniel about how God is gonna restore his people, how he's gonna do these things. Then you and I get to Ezra and Nehemiah and we read about how God raises up a pagan king and says, hey, I want you to rebuild my people. I want you to rebuild my city. I want you to rebuild my temple. And these pagan kings go, hey, I had a dream, and it came from a God named Yahweh. And he told me to send some of you back and to pay for everything. Next time you're worried about where the money's going to come from, if you just will get on board with what God is doing, Tell, to me, one of the first signs that God's maybe not being in it is that we just don't have the money for it. It might be your plans instead of God's plans. Just a thought. On the other hand, like... Well, I won't go into the other hand. Repeatedly, Israel's restored even from her worst behavior. So here we are, Romans chapter 11, Right? And here in Romans chapter 11, Paul is making the point by citing from all three sections of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is often referred to as the Tanakh Torah, Navim, Katavim. The instructions, the prophets, and the writings divided up differently we do it by in the greek way uh so we talk about you know the the torah or the pentateuch the first five books then we talk about prophets major and minor and then we have psalms and other writings And, and so we divide it up that way a little bit different but the the hebrew bible is divided up torah prophets and writings paul quotes one quote from each section of scripture to make the point that the entire witness of the Bible is that even when God rebukes and chastens His children, that they're still His, that He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't give up on you. Do you know that? I don't mean in the churchy kind of way where you just like regurgitate the right answers on Sunday school or you say something like, Jesus? You know, because <laughs> like whenever you teach Sunday school class, that's what the little kids say. If they don't know what to say, I, I've even heard kids talk about this. Well, if you don't know what to say, you just say, Jesus? Because then no one's going to say, look at you and go, wrong answer. They'll always go, well, yeah, yes, honey, but, you know, and then they'll like try to feed the answer to the child, you know, because it's the nice thing to say. I don't mean the church answer, I mean, do you know that God loves you? Even when you're faithless? Even when you fall? God chastens His children, but they're still His. And so we look at the long-suffering nature of God throughout the entire witness of the Hebrew Bible, followed by the restoration of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the nation state by other nations who then like write the check to do it, and, and, and somehow we've missed the message from the Old Testament that God is patient and merciful. Isn't that crazy that we would miss that? How is it that we would read our, our, the Old Testament any other way and, and conclude that only if we believe the heretical doctrine that God gave up on Israel, and that the church replaced Israel. That's the only way you conclude that. You would have to believe a heretical doctrine that God gave up on Israel. I want you to let that sink in deeply why you and I need the whole witness of the Bible, why we are not just New Testament Christians. Because if you are, you're missing a whole lot. The entire witness says that his children are still his. And so then he points out about Elijah, the prophet of God. <clears throat> now, now I, I love some things that you know like in James it tells us about Elijah because Elijah was this really powerful prophet right i mean everybody likes to talk about Elijah he calls down fire from heaven you know and like and there's water all everywhere and it soaks up the water there's the fire it's like it's like one of those events where you go Man, that was cool. Like, you'd like to be there and witness that. When fire falls from heaven, you just go, wow. Just like he prays all the other prophets all day long. The false prophets are slashing themselves, they're carrying on, and he's taunting them. Maybe your God's on the toilet. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's got COVID. No, not literally, but, you know, I mean, like there's all this, like this, he's just punking them, right? And and then all of a sudden he goes, okay, step back. If you are the real God of heaven, let fire fall from the heavens, and consume this, this, consume this altar and the gift on it, and whoosh, and it happens, and we like go, yeah, because we'd like to see more of that, right, anybody, everybody, come on now, of course we, we, we like, every time we want our enemies, like, you know, like God let fire fall from it, he- you know, the sons of thunder, right, it's not just John and, and his brother, you know, it's, But also what it tells us in James, and I love this part, can you just like camp out here with me for just a moment? That Elijah was a man just like you and me. Nothing special about Elijah. You and I make him special. James tells us otherwise. He was just a man like you and me. And he prayed. See, the one that's special is Well, God. And in his ordinariness, he says, oh God, nobody loves you but me. I don't suppose you've ever prayed that prayer, right? In a moment, when it's not going your way, or somebody hurt your feelings at church, No, nobody's ever had that problem But me. Anyhow, so, um, and God's word to him, Elijah, I've reserved 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's 7,000 people among my people besides you who are faithful. And would you and I note that then shortly after, God took Elijah home. Not as a punishment, nor as a reward, but simply here was the thing that Elijah just wasn't able to do what God needed done next, so he replaced him with Elisha. And then Elisha did for Israel the same thing that Moses did for Israel, the same thing that Jesus did. He interceded. He stood in the gap. Here in the letter to the Romans, the Apostle tells the Ecclesia of Rome, God's the same. On the one hand, look, they were chosen by election. They are loved on account of the patriarchs. On the other hand, they have the right to refuse. Some will obey, some will not. Some will say yes, others will refuse. God loves them nonetheless, much in the way that God loves the whole world. For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. When you look at verse 11, I really like the way it's translated in the Kingdom New Testament. Have they tripped up in such a way as to fall completely? Certainly not. And yet, here's the part we struggle with. Verse 22 is clear. You can be cut off, even among the elect. I realize that doesn't fit very well in either camp Arminian or Calvinist, right? Because, you know, if you're Arminian, you don't want there to be any elect. And if you are, if you're a Calvinist, you know, only the elect. And and so then, like, you know, what do you do? Well, they can't fall. They can fall. And and suddenly both camps are in conflict. And, you know, can I just point out something to you that I've just noticed over the years of studying my Bible? Anytime there are doctrinal tensions like that that we're both camps can defend their points well by pulling out certain verses out of context and you know and ramping up and then they can defend themselves and then they never seem to convince the other side because they're busy quoting Bible verses back and forth at one another that the answer usually lies in the tension between the two extremes that there's that seemingly impossible thing that God would make both things true. So what we see is among the elect that no one accidentally falls. Some have turned away in pursuit of their own way, but the elect persevere as a whole. Remember in chapter 8, we were told that team God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not only has God given us his transformative power, but he is rooting for us, interceding for us. We're told that Jesus makes intercession. Not only did he go to the cross, but he continually makes intercession for us. That the Holy Spirit continually makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. There's this whole thing where team God is transforming us, rooting for us, interceding for us, empowering us so that we can persevere. And we ask the question, That how can we fail? How could we, how can we fall apart? I mean, that's the whole point of chapter 8, right? I mean, is this this cheering on in the midst of transformation. You can, you will, if you will press in, if you will persevere, God will make sure that you persevere. Chapter 9 tells us how God used Israel to bring hope to the nations that it was his desire in his putting them together and, and giving them this vision of being a light unto the Gentiles, a, a city on a hill. And so chapter 10 tells us that that continues now, not only through spiritual Israel, but in the hopes of redeeming that part of physical Israel that has not responded. So chapter 10 tells us that some have fallen away. He uses the phrase, not all of Israel will be saved, but all of Israel that is Israel, spiritually and literally. But then it tells us again that he's held out his hand all day long. He's never turned his back on Israel. Not physical Israel, not spiritual Israel. And that the new covenant is no exception. And that brings us to the picture of this Cultivated olive tree versus the wild olive tree, comparing Israel with the Gentiles when it comes to the message of Jesus as Messiah. And Israel being that cultivated tree, and the wild olive tree branches being those Gentiles who believed the message of Messiah and have been grafted in. It's this beautiful picture of how that. Israel, the intent He had for them, but yet that deep-rootedness in the history of the God's people, the deep-rootedness, you and I would look to the Hebrew Scriptures and find out who God is and who the God is that we believe in and, and how we relate to Him, understanding His nature, His kindness, His mercy, His justice at work in the world, and that we would be grafted into that. Not a whole new tree. Grafted in. Because the God who did what He did for Israel is the same God who is doing what He's doing for us. Our salvation, our hope, our faith, all in His faithfulness. And so he points out, he says, look, even these things that are done that that you don't understand and the way that part of Israel falls away and stuff like that, he goes, I'm telling you that this is, God knows what He is doing. And that He is provoking all that part of Israel that didn't respond. He's provoking them with the message, look what God will even do in His kindness and His mercy for the Gentiles. Look what God will do. He's saying to all of us, look what God will do for for His elect. And then we, and you, you and I, like we have this promise. If He will do that for them, He will do it for us. He will be patient with us. He will not just reject us when we fall. He will not give up. Do you believe that God won't give up on you? Do you? Again, I'm I'm not talking about the Sunday school answer. I'm not talking about the church answer. I'm, I'm talking about in your heart of hearts. I'm talking about the quiet place. when your heart is in turmoil. I'm talking about the place when difficult circumstances come your way. I'm talking about when your child's on the operating table, your spouse has passed, when your finances have been pulled out from under you. Do you believe that He loves you? When you did stupid with zeros on the end and they've come to claim your stuff. When you did stupid and the physical effects are taking their toll on your body from years ago or maybe more recent, do you know that he still loves you? That God never stopped caring about physical Israel. He never stops caring about the Gentile world. He never stops caring about spiritual Israel. All are loved by God. And not in an unhealthy, dysfunctional love of a codependent parent that never says no. See, he actually does say no to things. He actually does tell us there is a falling away. The love of God is not anything goes in the name of love, which is popular in modern society, misguided attempts to normalize unhealthy behavior or justify self-destructive patterns in the name of love. No, God loves us. He sets real boundaries and he calls us to real choices. God calls on us to change and to grow, to become. He loves us too much to leave us as we are. And when we all together reject His love, He lets us go our own way. Even to the point of our own destruction. He will not force you to be in His presence. He will not force you to love Him. You can go your own way. Whether you're physical Israel or physical Gentile, You can say yes to God through Jesus the Messiah. And if you're physical Israel or physically a Gentile, you can reject his love. But the invitation? Irrevocable. His gift and his calling, irrevocable. And if you choose him, his mercy and his riches are unfathomable. His love, immeasurable, even when you fall, even when you stumble, even when you're stupid. And that's really what's driving the whole thing about being transformed, about what it means to be a new creation, is when you and I begin to realize how all of us, the entire creation scope, the the whole of the cosmic experiment was all for God to demonstrate His love for us, for us to fall in love with Him. Like when you begin to let that message of the Scripture begin to work through your whole entire being, when you begin to see that tremendous witness of how all of time in history has been speaking this message, that God is continually holding out His hand. When you realize from the very beginning that we were made in His image, and that we have always been the object of his affection. Not the angels, not anything else in all of creation. That we have always had a choice to love him or to not love him. And that loving him and doing what he says is not only good, but it makes life work, it restores life, it brings us the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction. If we love Him and we know that He loves us, and that becomes the very defining idea of what heaven is all about, His will done perfectly. On the other hand, if we love Him kind of like we love ourselves, Well, that becomes hell. But in all things, in all of creation, everything in the cosmos finds its greatest fulfillment in bringing glory to God. And nothing in the the whole cosmos will ever find fulfillment as long as it pursues something less than His goodness and glory. How do you find fulfillment in life? It's the question that we talk about a lot philosophically but it's one that we really don't have to look far for the answer here's the real question you ask yourself what is the focus of my life? see in a church context we know that the response is supposed to be my life is focused on God I live for God and for His will Really? Really? See, I think if we're honest with ourselves, that lack of understanding just how much God loves us and and that how he created us in his image and that he wants to have his way in us and through us and that that will bring us the greatest satisfaction. It won't be in in just the the things I can imagine with my heart and mind or things like that. But if I really had this sense of that God loves me and that the things he calls me to are the things that will bring me the greatest sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. If I really understood what it means to bring God into every part of my life, I think, we would one, we would pray differently. One, second, we would experience life differently. See, what most of us mean when we say that we have God as the focus of our life is that what, we've smeared a little Jesus on what we've decided to do. But life has not been defined by who God created us to be or why He made us. And to that, I would tell you, it's never too late. Honestly, how many of us have even really gotten beyond the question of, Am I saved or not? It's where most of us live our life in church. The questions that circle around that topic occupy almost all of our thoughts What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Am I the elect or not? Am I saved or not? Am I reading this text against the backdrop of all that God has done through Israel to show them what He wanted from them? Or are we just stuck on that point? God, would you bless what I've decided to do? Am I saved? Am I not saved? If your Christianity is all about you, it is a very small religion indeed. or if you have found your infinite sense of value in the fact that He loves you, and if you will trust in the call that He has upon you, I promise you that the transformed life of knowing and doing His good, pleasing, and perfect will will far exceed your wildest dreams. Well, so here's my question for one another ministry time. Do you feel loved by God? I'm not asking if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you prayed the prayer, raised your hand, or done anything like that. I'm, I'm asking the question is, do you feel loved by God? Not mental assent. Not that you have... A mental agreement with the scriptures I read and I believe that verse for the moment in time I'm asking do you feel the love of God for you and if not I just want to invite you to stand and get some prayer today So let me just invite you to stand do you feel loved by God and if you don't let me invite you to stand All right, let's stand together. Let's go ahead and have uh, prayer team members if you want to come to the front. So if you have any other needs this morning, or if you just didn't stand because of fear, let me invite you to come get some prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I I thank you for the witness of your word that from time eternal to time eternal, that you have held out your hand of mercy and grace to us that you have loved us with an unceasing love in both our weaknesses and failures as well as in our successes in bringing you glory and honor and i pray father that your empowering presence the transformative power of the gospel would continue to bring us into harmony with who you revealed yourself to be and what you're doing in the world. Lord, for our city, for our county, for our state, for our country, to the ends of the earth, that your love would spark our hearts to demonstrate the gospel to those who are afar off, that we would love the world the way that you love the world. and that we would not judge the world the way we judge ourselves. And Holy Spirit of God, we we pray that for the unity of the church around the world and for the unreached people groups to hear your good news so that we might say in all earnestness, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week. We'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others? by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.